Hey guys, welcome back to Profitable Property Management. Today's episode is with Chuck Hadamer from Poplar Homes, which has been around for about nine years now, which is really impressive to me. They're one of the few venture-backed SaaS service hybrids that's been able to not only survive, but thrive over that period of time. We get into the natural organic journey of how they've been able to work through false starts, stumbles to get to this point, their model for acquisition, why they got into the M&A game late, as well as their approach to taking on thoughtfully, tactfully, and specifically the limited pieces of the tech stack that they really feel like are important to own and why they've gone with off-the-shelf retail solutions for just about everything else. I think you're going to like this one. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, and today I am with Chuck Hadamer. Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be back. Repeat guest, we've had you on before, and there was just more to talk about. I felt like we didn't get to cover as much as I wanted, and I want an update. So for those that don't know, didn't listen to the first episode, let's rewind the tape a bit. Tell us a little bit about what Poplar does. Yeah, so uh, Poplar Homes... We are a national property management and technology company. So got started in 2014, really as a technology platform for leasing. And we quickly expanded from there within the first year into full service property management on the back of our platform that we were building for owners and residents. So we do third party property management um, for retail investors. Uh, we have about 15,000 doors, which is made up of about 9,000 SFR doors, uh, 3,000 multifamily and 3,000 HOA. And we're basically coast to coast now at this point, started in California, but uh, we serve 17 different states and 24 metro markets um, and all third-party management. How many years total in the, in the game for? Nine years now. Nine years. All right. So nine years is great because that means it's actually been a, a fairly significant story arc. You can't limp along for nine years. Mm -hmm. You can't uh, be doing anything other than something that has this, the seeds of viability to go on for nine years. And what I've seen within a nine-year span is that the market has shifted a lot. What I'm curious about is the different eras or epochs of the company. Let's just set some context right there. What were some of the major inflection points that allowed you guys to be here nine years later? Yeah, so, you know, we started as undergraduates at Santa Clara University, which is a small Jesuit school in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, so we didn't, you know, necessarily come with a wealth of knowledge. We sort of threw ourselves into the industry. And I think throwing ourselves into the industry and the business really kind of characterizes that first era, which was all about, um, you know, essentially hitting the road and knocking on doors and just kind of brute forcing our way into figuring out product market fit. Um, and it was a lot about, you know, we, we hired all of our friends out of college as our, our, the first team we built was a sales team. We traded moving out a professor's house for him training our sales team. He was a guy that built some of the first sales teams at Hewlett Packard. So it was a lot of like, just kind of, hey, 
could you do this for us in exchange for what will help you move out of your, your house? Uh, stuff like that, that I think really characterized that first era. Um, the first few years of the business was all about that. And, and it was really just about kind of building the airplane as we were flying it. Um, and in many ways we still feel that way. I think the second era was sort of all about, you know, okay, we've, we figured out product market fit. We know we weren't rocket scientists doing something completely new. It was property management. But I think we didn't fully realize in that first era that property management is like running 10 businesses in one. So that second era was sort of all about, okay, how do we actually deliver on the operational side of property management? Um, the technology could only go so far. And we realized in order for this thing to really scale, we had to figure out those operational processes, you know, how, how to show houses on demand, how to do inspections, maintenance. Um, so that was all about kind of getting those 10 different businesses in property management to talk to each other operationally, um, and figuring out a way to actually scale it without a, a huge labor cost base. Um, and that's in 2017, we expanded to the Philippines. We set up our HQ2 out there. Uh, my co-founder Rico moved out there and started building that office. Um, so that was all about that. That second era was building out that kind of scalable operation. And then the third era, like what I think we're in right now, the past three years has really been about how do we build this sort of national brand? Our, our whole like vision for this business from day one was to create this sort of one click experience, rental experience. Um, we started with that vision on the renter side, and this has all been about how do we create that national brand on the owner side and grow to all the different markets. Um, so that's when we really started the acquisitions, uh, the M&A in the last three years, um, and the technology has really been invested in heavily since then. So that's uh, where we are today. How many units have you guys acquired today? So we've acquired about 10,000 doors um, plus, maybe maybe 12,000 doors at this point. And going, your acquisitions are active? Right, yep. M&A has tapered off a bit in the industry overall. Still present, yeah. but not quite as hot and heavy as it was. Yeah, right. So we, we're still very acquisitive. We are integrating the acquisition. So we do either asset or equity purchases. So what I mean by that is asset, meaning buying the contracts, the property management contracts, um, and maybe some other assets if there's key people that want to be a part of the, the local operation, um, or equity purchases, which is, or buying the whole operation. The, the main change for us in M&A in the last you know 12 months has been focusing more on the asset purchase side. Um, so buying more portfolios of contracts and integrating them onto our platform in a, you know, eight week period after the transaction. So, um, we are actually bringing our technology and service model to the customers, um, which has taught us a lot. You know, that's not always a smooth, a smooth transition, mm -hmm. uh, but we're learning on that. What are some of the distinctives of how you guys acquire? There are different types of acquirers. For example, when you come in, what happens to the staff? Yeah. So... What's really important to us is ensuring that all the great things that attracted us to a business to begin with are preserved. So 
Uh, that can be a variety of things, but in property management, it's oftentimes the people and the relationships that those people have have uh, developed over the years. And and oftentimes the way that they do business is what has led to them developing great relationships. So our model is we, you know, if a, if a seller approaches us and, or a business owner approaches us and they say, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm totally done with this business. I want to be out of it. Um, and they want to retire, something like that, then we'll work with that situation. Um, we will, we, we have our integrations team. We have a whole team dedicated to integrations. And what I mean by that is the team that kind of integrates the companies onto our system. And that team is involved from day one, like even before any agreements are signed. Um, and they are, interviewing, you know, employees when the, when the owner is comfortable with, uh, introducing us, they are evaluating every aspect of the business and asking like, Hey, what, what's your special sauce that you built your legacy on? What do you want to, you know, maintain as part of this portfolio going forward? And we attach a lot of value to that. So, um, that's probably what makes us a little bit different is that because we want to integrate within eight weeks of a transaction, we are very involved with getting to know the staff, how they do things, offering them opportunities to be part of that local operation or other parts of the company. Our VP of product, um, he joined from the sale of his property management company up in Seattle. Um, Who's that? That's Michael Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his company uh, called RN, RNLNG up in Seattle. And he had a really interesting background where he uh, worked in product at Intuit and Groupon and was a product manager at those companies. And then he bought a property management business to get into that because he was passionate about real estate investing. And that's like a really unique talent in the in the prop tech space, someone that kind of really d- understands that sort of agile thinking around software development and product, but also understands the inner workings of an operational business like property management. One of the things that's of interest to me is looking at what's happened in the landscape. I think the thing that comes to mind about your story really is the fact that you guys are still here. And that's not a commentary on your company in particular, but just the general category, prop tech, money coming into this space, and specifically SaaS service hybrids. We've seen seen a number of them, and many of them have not fared well. There are some that are officially in the graveyard. There are others that have had significant uh, thesis deviation and creep, which is a sign that something wasn't working. And here you guys are still more or less doing the same thing as a SaaS service hybrid operating. Please tell me more about what you have seen with your peers and why it appears that you guys are having a level of stamina that others have not been able to maintain. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I like have so much respect for all the, uh, companies that have, we've grown up with in this space. Um, you know, mind for example, is we, we got started basically across the bay from them and grew up together. Um, and it's, you know, I think we, we always started with, this idea of, um, again, sort of this like one click rental experience. You know, it was very probably idealistic of us, but we've all, it's always been core to everything we've done and built that service and software must be intertwined. So from the very beginning, our software, like you could not 
take our software and sell it to a property manager. Um, it just is not designed and built like that. It's designed so it's so intertwined with our our wow. service component. Um, and so that's just meant that, you know, our that's always been core to our, to our, our business um, since the beginning. And we sort of approached the business too from the consumer side and we didn't necessarily walk into it with like a portfolio of properties that we owned and needed to manage. And so I think a lot of our peers, you know, have tremendous experience in, you know, operating and owning um, portfolios of property. And that's why maybe some of them got more into the PropCo uh, side of things where they were actually partnering with capital partners to go and buy portfolios of properties and own and operate them themselves. Or some of our other peers, um, they came from the world of venture capital or private equity. And so they were very good at um, understanding how to put together capital and roll up businesses and buy businesses. So that's, I think a lot of the origin stories of our peers kind of guided the directions that they've in the past they've gone down and same for us. We, our origin story was, you know, a leasing product for off-campus rentals around the university that we, we were attending. So that it's always been that kind of technology service uh, component. And we, you know, grew organically for the first six years and didn't start acquisitions until three years ago. Um, and that was really to try to turn on that growth engine uh, more dramatic. What did you guys learn about your build philosophy along the way? Philosophically, there's build versus buy. Even if you're minded towards building, you don't necessarily want to build everything at once. What has been kind of the progress and the cadence of what you've chosen to build in what order? What have you built that didn't work and you had to retreat back on to tr take another crack at it later? Talk to me about that journey. Yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit about it in our last um, episode. Our whole build building philosophy, especially when it came to like technology, um, it always starts with the people and the the processes that they're running. And and what I mean by that is, um, we didn't build any piece of technology until we first did it many times over and over again with people. Um, and so we like an example would be like showings, you know, that's booking tours for, for showings was one of the first things that we built because it was a very repeatable kind of, um, you know, mundane tasks that was happening the same way over and over. Um, and that's always been our philosophy when it comes to building, um, is to look at that. Now, when it comes to build versus buy that, that component, again, thinking about our origin stories, our, our, our vision was always to create this sort of experience um, where it was sort of one branded digital first experience. And what that meant was really controlling the brand experience from the customer facing perspective, whether that's owner or resident. Um, so how that factors into build versus buy is our philosophy is anything that is the customer is interacting with, we want to own that experience um, because we think property management is all about lifetime value of the customers and creating this sort of brand experience. And you think about the generational shift in real estate and SFR, 
the new generation of those coming into ownership of of rental properties are people that have grown up with these digital digital first branded experiences. Think Uber, or, you know, Airbnb, etc. Um, so we wanted to build that piece that was facing that customer. We didn't want them jumping around between systems. We're talking portals, right? So, but the buy side is okay. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. We we tried to reinvent the wheel at one point. We started building our own accounting system, and we realized, wait a second, this is, you know, someone else has already thrown hundreds of millions of dollars at this. Bridge too far out, right? So anything that's our internal team is interacting with um, is off the shelf, um, and it's and we think that's really important because you can change really quickly and you can adapt quickly, which is critical for an internal team, um, and it's not critical that the portal that our internal team is working off of says Poplar and is designed by our software engineers, right? Because that mm. there's not as much mm. value there because mm. we're not trying to sell that to other people. That's just for our process. That's a really specific perspective, Chuck. I appreciate you explaining that. But the way I, th I see people approaching this is, on the one hand, wanting to control everything. Mm -hmm. Why? Prove we're a tech company, right? We're not right. just reliant on other vendors. Um, but I hear you sussing out that that client-facing experience is kind of the 80-20. If we can just go a little bit deeper on on yeah. why that in particular is of so much significance. Can you think of any examples of anything that you're doing there in that experience that feels like is allowing you to harvest the juice? Or is it really, is it primarily the brand orientation of, of it being a continuous popular, popular experience that that's the brand I'm interacting with? Yeah, so... Um... You know, I think one of one of the examples of maybe that branded experience that we feel like is really strong is um, something around like lease renewals, for example, um, if, if that's what you're talking about, sort of specific example. So that's something where we have a lease renewal process that, first of all, took us from 20% uh, of leases being renewed automatically to 80% now being renewed automatically. And the way that we've done that is we've created this really seamless experience where, you know, 90 days out from a lease ending, the owner gets a automated communication that has, and they go into their portal and they see, you know, here's the range of what we think your property could be renewed at with a, with a rent increase. Um, do you have any preferences on terms of lease you want to offer? They check, check a couple boxes. They can move the slider to set their rent. Um, and they, and they submit that and that triggers automation to go back to the resident, offer the various lease renewal terms, um, in their branded Poplar portal. And it's a very kind of seamless workflow to, and then, you know, the lease can be auto generated and sent to both parties and et cetera. So, um, that's an example of something that we're really proud of as you know, kind of that branded experience, but in the background, right, we are feeding that we, we work with multiple data providers to feed the rent estimate calculation. Um, we leverage, you know, CRM, uh, softwares to run the automated communications and triggers. So all of that is happening in the background, but from the customer perspective, it's kind of one seamless experience. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, you know, it does. And then that, that, specific stat you cited is fairly eye-popping. So that definitely makes the explanation yeah. without a lot of further detail. 
The overall approach that you guys are taking, I see some some nuance and thoughtfulness there. As you look into the future and you think about where the industry is headed, consolidation has been a theme, a concern in some corners, and obviously it's something that you guys are betting on that consolidation is possible. When I think about the headwinds against consolidation, one of the things that I think about is exceptions. Mm-hmm. Different types of properties, different owners, different markets, different regulatory environments. What has been y'all's philosophy in thinking about managing exceptions? I heard you say a little bit of HOA, a little bit of multifamily as well, correct? Mm-hmm. How do you think about when uh, deviating from the Model T standard pro- product is fine, small inconvenience, and when it could lead you down a path of, of compounding exponential complexity? Yeah, <laughs> I think multifamily is that kind of deviation that we've been tempted to go down multiple times. Um, and we we are in that business, but our philosophy is always to keep it 60% or more single family um, rental because that's the asset class that we're betting on and believing in. And and even within that asset class, there's wide variability in, in asset types. Um, so I think the, you know, when it starts to deviate too much is when you basically, there are core functions of our technology and service that have to change for that customer persona or type. So multifamily is a good example where something like reporting and financial reporting and accounting is vastly different with a multifamily portfolio owner compared to a single family owner. So we've been very careful to assess, okay, you know, is our product that we've designed for single family ready to be to expand into multifamily and we are not our multifamily portfolio in Chicago is an awesome uh, team out there. 33 management um, we acquired last year is our, our largest deal. That's about 3000 multifamily doors. And we've decided that 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 it's best that we let them run their system and playbook that's worked because we don't feel like our we're, you know, anywhere ready to be able to take on how they run things. And we've, combined the operations and shared a lot of learnings and the idea is that the experts there are going to help us build the multifamily platform um that we want to have to eventually manage those properties but yeah so so to answer your question i think it's really all about what are those what are core components that have to shift in order to accommodate the exception um and but if it's you know a a walk-up apartment versus a condo that's there's not necessarily a core component of your service that needs to shift to change that. There might be a change in how you access the units, but it's not you know, changing the whole financial reporting structure. Hmm. When you think about where the industry is headed and the influence of prop tech in this space, a lot of money has come in. There have been some significant innovations that have really been strong solutions, strong point solutions. Mm-hmm both in category expansion, new categories, and there's a a trail of dead bodies along the way of things that didn't quite work out. What do you see as being some of the opportunities and impact of PropTech going forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about the idea that technology enables this idea of um, transparency and sort of clarity around property management and real estate investing. So um, to, to build on that, what I mean is, you know, one of the greatest, if you look at the eras of prop tech, the first era was all about 
unlocking information. You know, the Zillows, Redfin's, um, just taking information that was previously gated behind brokers and, and others to unlock that. And some, you know, that did affect some negatively, but I think for the broad society, that was a huge plus because now you can go find out about houses without having to work through systems that were designed to kind of gate you from that information. The next era that we see was all about uh, these these sort of uh, point solutions that were helping with, you know, accounting or, um, you know, uh, e email marketing or something like that for specific parts of the business. And that was great because it helped people run better businesses and allowed them to actually scale their businesses a little bit more efficiently. Um, the new, the, the era that I think is great about PropTech now and the impacts that it's having now is combining all those things and actually creating a holistic uh, experience, whether you're buying software for your company to run your operations and your workflows and automations, um, which is, that helps you run an even better business and allows you to expose even more information about what's going on to your customers, which makes them more confident in your, in being a customer of yours. Um, so basically I think 10 years ago, property managers had a reputation of kind of being a black hole of, oh, I signed my property up. I never hear what's going on. What's been great about the last 10 years is now a person with a property can find a, a property management partner that, um, really allows them to be even more confident about owning investment property and actually expand their portfolio because that property manager is using prop tech to expose information, run a better business, um, and create clarity in, in their customer's experience. So it's a general efficiency for the market. Asset class performs better. Right. Everybody wins. Right. I think it's a, I think it's a win, a, a triple win, uh, to use a line from the, the second nature fellow. Sure, how to second nature. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's all about asset performance and make, and it makes people more confident to invest in real estate, which is really important. Um, and it builds up the positive reputation of using a professional partner to help you do that. Um, because as we know in the U S you know, 17 million single family rentals, 10 million mm -hmm. landlords, 70% mm -hmm. of them are self-managed. Um, and a lot of that has to do with sort of the American do it yourself culture. Um, and I think there's a great benefit to the fact that technology has allowed people to say, oh, I can do it myself, but I, or you know, I can get the feeling of doing it myself with all, without all the time suck, um, because my property manager uses technology to keep me informed okay. and confident. Well, let's talk about that. This whole thesis that a property manager can create value. We've heard for many, many years about pain relief. That's mm -hmm. one value prop, make your life easier. You get it. It's pretty straightforward. But for investors, for folks that are more sophisticated, mm -hmm. in many cases, they're comfortable with the pain. Pain alleviation is not is not it. It's not enough. They're looking for knowing that this is actually going, ideally going to positively impact their NOI, the bottom line for that. What's the best case that you can make to an investor that there actually is still margin in the deal? And this is not a zero sum situation, but this could actually be a, an accretive transaction. Yeah. I think first of all, the, yeah, when you think about the best case you can make for improving 
your NOI and performance of your portfolio. Um, I think from the role of a property manager, you, because you are leveraging, you know, technology and you, and you have more data about the performance of your property management portfolio, that becomes a useful tool for each individual client in that portfolio, because then, you know, a lot of today's a lot of today's real estate investors, especially new investors getting into the game, their express interest is achieving passive income and, you know, freedom of, uh, their time. Um, a great book, psychology of money, uh, Morgan Housel, that one of the big points he makes in that is the money's most intrinsic value is that it gives you power over your time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think when working with a real estate investor, yes, you know, you're asking them to pay management fees, which is a, an, an additional cost that's affecting their bottom line, but you are actually able to unlock that time component for them, which has a lot of value because that's their interest in real estate investing as the passive income. And you have all this data, hopefully you've been, you know, collecting and documenting and keeping good data of your portfolio's performance, and that can help you inform that client about things like how to grow their rent. Like what are the best things to ensure that you have good rent growth year over year? Um, how to maintain occupancy with the tenant? You know, what are the amenities that you need to offer? A lot of people, a lot of property managers now are offering pet guarantees or, um, you know, covering damages caused by pets. That's opens up 60% of the market. So things like that, which are informed from data about your portfolio can actually affect your client's bottom line. And they may not know that without having access to that wealth of data that you've built up. Um, so I think those are some examples of how you'd make a case to a client, how to boost their NOI. The types of owners that you work with, what, what is the, what percentage ballpark accidental investor? What does the demographic look like? Look like? Yeah. For, for popular, we have, we have three personas, uh, three primary personas we call kind of, uh, first timer Nathan, who is basically the accidental landlord, uh, far away Frida and DIYer Dan, um, to name a few, there's a couple others. Uh, but it's, it's about, you know, I think the majority are going to fall into that, uh, first timer and far away buckets. So I'd say it's, you know, probably. 30, 30 of each of those, or yeah, maybe 40, 40 of each of those, 40% first timers, 40% um, out of state or far away investors. And then the remaining 20% kind of split across the other personas. So that's, yeah, accidental landlords has been a big, that's how we got our start really. Um, so that's a big component of our portfolio. Chuck, why do you think it took you guys so long to get into the acquisition game. You guys were operating for a while in a window of time where that was pretty uh, popular. I mean, it was really going on and you guys have taken more time to kind of jump into that. What, help me understand that timeline. Yeah. So we, you know, basically within the first two years of us starting, we had a lot of people telling us, why don't you guys start acquiring other management companies? And, um, for Poplar, First of all, we, again, we started this as college students, uh, out of, as undergrads. So, you know, if you tell a bunch of college grads to go start buying businesses, 
it's like, well, uh, how do you do that? <laughs> so that, like, you know, that that's was, a practical answer. Yeah, that was the that was the first response. You know, within the first couple of years of, of starting the business, um, and then from there, so it was it was really about okay, first we got to have a team. You know, great people that know how to do this and know it well. Um, to be a part of this business. And we just weren't there yet. We wanted to really understand property management, get our feet wet and get our hands dirty in the business. Um, and then the other component was the whole investment thesis for Poplar and, and, you know, has always been that technology, our technology and platform can truly create efficiencies and margin expansion for the business. And our technology just wasn't there in the first few years. Um, so we weren't, we thought, there's not a tangible way that this technology can show a true, you know, uh, step change in the efficiency of a business if we acquired it. Um, and so it's only been the last few years where we've, we've got an incredible team that's comes from uh, an experience of doing hundreds of property management integration acquisitions and integrations, um, mostly in the short term rental space. So, you know, a lot of good playbooks that came over from that. Um, and the technology has gotten to a point that we can comfortably, you know, s transition and see that margin expansion, uh, from the technology side. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. In terms of where the company is headed now, you've mentioned that there's more of a drive to continue down this path of, um, M and I want to hear more about like the internal product development roadmap per se, as we'd say inside baseball at a software company. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what the experience looks like going forward, not just in terms of tech and features, but where do you see in terms of pushing the boundaries for the resident experience and the owner experience? Yeah, yeah, so the, I, I this is the third time I've mentioned it, but this one-click rental experience kind of guides, that's our North Star, and it's, again, very idealistic. I don't think it will ever get to truly one-click, but it's a good stake in the in the ground for us to aim at and um when we think about that we you know when it comes to the resident experience to start with our whole roadmap and vision for that is that all the different aspects of a painful renting experience um, and living experience try to start to pick those off and incorporate those into the into the technology and so today you know, you can book a self tour and go tour a home. And while you're touring it, you have a conversation open that walks you through the application and the lease signing. Um, but we think a lot about, you know, how can we make that move for the renter easier? Um, you know, we've always dreamed of, you could walk into your new popular home and your Wi-Fi auto connects, you know, you've got toilet paper on the roll already. Um, that sort of package service experience. There's a great, a great example um, in Japan. There are these services that if you move between apartments in Japan, they will come pack up everything in your apartment that you're moving out of, take it to your new apartment and set it up exactly the way it was, right? And you just walk between the two and it's like nothing changed, but everything's set up for you. So if we can get, you know, maybe not exactly that, but close to that, that's all about it for the resident experience. Um, pathway to home ownership is another big thing. Uh, so once they're living in the property, 
how can we help the re resident on their journey towards homeownership? Um, have you guys made any gains there? Any innovation happening in that category? Yeah, so we have a program. It's called Street Cred. So you earn your street cred living in a popular home. And it's essentially a loyalty program. So the longer you rent with us, every time you pay rent, you earn points that can be converted to cash back when you buy a home. Um, and that comes as a form of a cash back rebate after you purchase with us. And we fund that by being the buyer's agent of that resident. Uh, and they don't have to buy the home they're living in. It can be any home in any state that we're licensed in. Um, and we pass back commission that we earn to that resident to help fund that. So that's a big initiative that we, we want to expand on. What kind of uptake can you see? Um, we, we have a bit, especially in the last few years since uh, the pandemic, there's been a bigger uptake. We've you know only helped maybe a couple dozen folks on that uh, purchase, but the average check that we're delivering back is about $8,000 um, in cash back. Yeah. So we see a lot of interest in that and residents who have decided, you know, to rent another home in our network just to continue earning those points. Um, so that's been big. It's not, you know, something that we've operationalized to its fullest extent, but we, we hope to build on that. And we hope to expand that to the owner side as well, um, where the owner experience for us is all about being their lifetime partner as well. So how do we help them expand their portfolio? Um, if they need to sell their portfolio, you know, or a property within it, how do we connect them to other investors to make that happen? Um, so trying to be that lifetime partner and our, our North star for that, much like the Japanese apartment moving example is how do you make owning real estate as easy as owning stocks? Um, and that doesn't just mean like fractional ownership. I think that gets that metaphor gets tied up in that, but it means, you know, opening up your Robinhood app and checking on your stocks and making decisions on your stocks. How do you recreate that experience for real estate? How do you think about the macroeconomic headwinds that we deal with in the industry? I guess specifically, how do you think about the headwinds that impact the returns that owners can achieve, i.e., how do you think about managing property in markets where there is no cash flow to be had and the value prop that you're describing and discussing with with owners in those scenarios yeah um you know i think the the macroeconomic trends that we face are definitely cyclical i think the nice thing about property management is that pretty much in every market scenario it's an essential business and um, oftentimes thrives in times of, of market pullback or recession um, you know, when interest rates, especially recently, uh, have gone up, that means that people are moving out of their primary residence, but not selling it and turning it into a rental. So property managers can benefit from that. Um, but when we think, and when we think about investing in markets that are not necessarily cash flow, a lot of it is the owners of real estate in those markets are in it for appreciation and having an asset in that market, like California, for example. Um, I think there's a general feeling that California will always be a desirable place to own real estate and there will be financial gains and appreciation to have that. So for that type of customer, it's more about protecting the asset, making sure it's taken care of in the way that they left it if they moved out of that home um, and it was previously their primary residence. But 
what's interesting, what tends to happen with that type of customer is there are a lot of accidental landlords in those markets and they get a taste of that and they're not totally accidental. Like they have chosen to keep that property as a rental. Um, so I think that term accidental kind of gets tied up in, 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 in that concept where they did make a conscious decision. Hey, why don't I try this out? Why don't I try renting this out? And that can actually open them up to the idea of real estate investing in other markets. Um, so we see those clients, they start out as accidental landlords and they become portfolio owners. Investors. How do you think about the role of property management in relation to affordable housing? Is there anything we can do to impact this? Are we simply on the sidelines? Do you guys think that there's a role that the PM can play to actually help resolve this really nationwide yeah. issue of a lack of affordable housing? Yeah, I, you know, a property management can certainly make affordable housing um, easier for builders and developers to get into. I think at the end of the day, affordable housing is all, all about activating the builders and developers and making it making the economics work um, to actually build and develop affordable housing in some of the cities that are facing the worst housing crises. So um, if I, you know, the way the role property management can play is if you can, you know, partner with builders and developers and provide them insights into how the economics could work out for them when it comes to the performance of this building or these houses over a period of time, the financial performance, um, the efficiencies that they will gain from effective property management, then perhaps property management can play a role in demonstrating positive economics on, on developing affordable housing. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of a lot of the reasons that we're so behind in our development of affordable housing is it just doesn't make sense financially for the builders and developers and you know the private ownership of land in the US also puts up a big barrier where um you know somewhere like China for example where they own the government owns all the land they can decide oh this land is for affordable housing and you can build on it. But in the United States, you can't quite do that. Well, I'm glad the government <laughs> doesn't own all the land. Right. And uh, I think like regulation is part of what you're getting at yeah. is that the burden is so high for building. You guys are out of the Bay Area, correct? Yeah, right. The classic example, right? The burden associated with building not affordable housing per se in the designated class, but housing in general. It's just a tremendous amount of burden. There's a lot of NIMBY sentiment, et cetera. Yeah until there's some kind of a unlock with those dynamics, I think we're going to continue to be in a scenario where part of the solution is for folks to flee to other parts of the country of, of where they're at. That does relate to differing regulatory environments. You, how many states are you guys in right now? Uh, 17 states. What's the amount of variance that you see in terms of the regulatory environment and how that impacts the managing of the business? Yeah, it's, certainly increased a lot. I think we we were sort of, uh, I guess, blessed or cursed, depending on how you looked at it, uh, that we started in the Bay Area, San Francisco, mm. which is probably top, you know, one of the top uh, places for regulatory impact. Uh, Oregon has been um, probably even worse than California. That's been very tricky. So the West Coast um, and 
it's it's sort of divided. I think the country's kind of divided in three categories for property measure uh, regulation, which kind of follows the coast. You got the West Coast seems to be the most extreme, Midwest, and then East Coast um, has some elements of of the coastal market. So, yeah. So I think variance has definitely increased. I you know I don't know how I could put a number on it. I think we've got. Um, five or six different variations of property management agreements across the 17 states. So not 17, um, but, you know, five or six. So we've been able to try to find middle grounds that allows us to create kind of a national standard. And how do you think about expanding into new markets versus just getting bigger in the markets that you're already in? Yeah. For us, we want, we, we really want to get the local market right. Um, and find like a really great partner through an acquisition um, before we really start expanding that local market. So when it comes to acquisitions, we're largely looking at new markets um, because of that reason. We we know that we have an organic growth engine that we can turn on um, through you know direct sales and marketing in a market once we have sort of a beachhead. Um, and so that's where a lot of our organic growth is focused versus new markets is almost always through new acquisitions and partners that we've found that have really strong local expertise and operations and uh, good growth engines. That's, we attach a lot of value to that as well, because we can layer in our organic growth engine with the partners and hopefully see exponential growth. What does a great partner mean from your vantage point? There are clearly some acquirers to which a door is a door is a door. Mm-hmm. And obviously the door is, is disconnected from the owner, which is disconnected from the, the uh, company owner, but in your mind, what is a great partner? Yeah, I think um, the the great partners that we look for through the acquisition side are really those that are um, sophisticated about like op- the operation of their business and have actually built great workflows and um, great customer experience through their their operation. Um, and you can see that through talking with the clients or through the due diligence process, having all their, you know, P&Ls prepared and proper, you know, rent rolls and histories. They're actually using the full benefits of the software, property management softwares that they've bought, um, the full feature set. Uh, and they're, they're also really passionate about the local community and, and very knowledgeable about the people in that community what's, what do they care about? And they've leveraged that knowledge to grow their business. Um, and they've got a strong organic growth trajectory. So those are some of the, yeah, those are some of the features of good partners. Let's end it here. If there's one thing that you could change about the industry, what would it be? We could find another word for property management. Uh, I think it would make it a lot sexier. The name, the name. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see that coming, but I can relate to where you're coming from. It's a mouthful. It I mean, really is. Describing what you do, and it's a, it's a yawn, a yawn inducer. You feel like you get zero credit. You're never like waiting for people to, you know, go wide eyed when when you after you say it. Right, right. If, if there could be like a cool, you know, like driverless taxis is cool. Property management people yawn. 
Yeah, there's a yawn, and yet we know in our hearts it's serving a great purpose and a great need. So, yeah, okay, I'm with you. Well, we'll think on it. Needs that. a rebrand. Some people, a rebrand. Some people have tried asset management. You know, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's something out there. We'll have to call the category design team to take up that case. I, I'm sure you got the best in the business on that. Appreciate you coming on. Good to see you as always. Look forward to uh, watching your progress and journey in the industry. You too. Thank you, Jordan. Let's leave it there. Peace. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, we'd really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.